On this episode of AvTalk, we try to fit in as many Breeze Airways puns as we can, as Jason fills us in on the airline's inaugural flight. We also take stock of the situation in Belarus and see where things stand now. Plus, Airbus is getting ready to ramp up A320 family production in a big way. Hello and welcome to episode 114 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. And hi, Ian, are you still getting used to doing this thing every week now? Yes, I am. I feel it is a good rhythm to have. And I am still excited by the number of people who seem very excited about this development. And thankfully... Or not, I guess, is depending on how you look at things. It seems like we've got enough to talk about. Yeah. In this case, I, I think it's all good rather than having too many bad things to talk about. So that that's a plus. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, things are decent. There's there's some, some not so decent stuff, but all in all, I think it'll be a, a positive episode. Last episode, last week, eh? last week- uh, Seven days- you- Yes, you, sir, were about to embark on a windswept journey. And how did that go? It was good. So it was the first pair of flights for Breeze, the new David Nealman startup airline, I guess, in the the East Coast. So we have a Velo out on the West Coast, and now we have Breeze with a much more large-scale, wide-scale launch out on the East Coast. And the first flights operated from Tampa to Charleston and then Charleston to Hartford, Connecticut, which are two lines I will probably never fly again in my life. So that's always interesting to throw up on the big board. And how was the actual flying experience? I mean, fine. It's uh, a gently pre-owned or used E-195 from another David Newman airline. They, they took these aircraft from Azul down in Brazil. They stripped the old live TV screens out of the seat back, and that's pretty much it. They, they left the aircraft pretty much untouched for now. So there's no entertainment. There's no power. There's no Wi-Fi. They're not yet up and running with their buy-on-board food and beverage program. So everyone gets a free bottle of water and a bag of chips. That's about it. So I've kind of been calling Breeze right now a beta access program. Like This is not what it is intended to be in the future. At some point later this year, They'll refurbish these Embraer aircraft, so they'll, they'll be a little more custom-tailored on the inside because right now they're pretty Spartan lifeless. It doesn't really match the brand and the exterior paint job. And eventually, they'll get the airplanes they really meant to actually be flying, which is the Airbus A220s. So right now, if you want to get from A to B without going through C, like Tampa – or not Tampa, but Atlanta or Dallas or another hub like Charlotte, it's a great option if you need to get from – I don't know, Pittsburgh to Hartford for some reason, or, or Tulsa to New Orleans without stopping for $49. It's a great option, but just don't expect much in the way of amenities because I guess you really don't need it on a 49-minute flight between Huntsville and Charleston. Yeah. I mean, the initial 
not the initial route network of you know two flights, but kind of the initial proposed route network once things get up and running seems very i 'm not sure why I would ever need to fly between these two cities, but there seem to be enough people who do need that and could make use of it at that price yes, a lot of jokes about easier access for the in laws to come visit you now that they can fly from Bentonville, Fayetteville to San Antonio nonstop. That's always a route that I felt is extremely underserved. Yeah, sure. So I mean, it, it was it was good that the festivities were good. It was more so than anything else. It was very nice to get out there and do a thing again. In this case, it was a lot of things. I flew from LaGuardia to Tampa, and then with Breeze from Tampa to Charleston, Charleston to Hartford, and then took a train from Hartford to New Haven, and then a train from New Haven to New York, and then two subways to get home. So it was a long day, but it felt strangely nice to be out and doing stupid things like that again. <laughs> and we look forward to the ever increasing volume of stupid things that we can do again as the summer marches on and ho hopefully that all that all works out for us. Yeah, hopefully. I, you know, I'm I'm excited to live vicariously once again through your your exploits. I'm yeah, sure, sure. I already got you out of the house once this year, so that's uh, yeah, that's it. That's my quote. That's my oh, quarter, I thought you get right two there. trips out of the house. Are we down to one yeah, these days? Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see. But the flight was good. I heard there were some issues with, shall we say, regulatory compliance? Not with the flight okay. itself. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you okay. mentioned it- well, We don't have to talk about it. No, no. Since, since you mention it, I am several I others are- Yeah. Uh, we're, we're quite upset, or at least I am personally upset- that founder and I, I guess CEO of Breeze, David Nealman, who is no newcomer to the airline industry, had complete disregard for the mask regulation on board his own aircraft. And that also applied to who I guess was his wife and also other senior executives at the Breeze team. They pretty much spent the majority, if not the entire time on the flight without their masks on, even of course when they were not eating. And that just showed kind of a, a real disrespect towards fellow passengers. Looking at his social media history, it, it's clear he's, I don't know if you want to call it a COVID denier, but he's definitely has opinions that I do not agree with. But it's a sticky situation because you're not going to get a flight attendant on day one who is probably also a student at a university in Utah who is riding on the airline to pay his student loans, I guess, to go up to the CEO and say, sir, you have to put your mask on. That's just not going to happen. So I was really disappointed that the senior leadership at Breeze was not setting a good example. And I'm not going to tattle on them, but I hope someone at the FAA or some other regulatory body notices and acts accordingly to fine David Nealman and whoever else was on that flight without a mask because protections are in place for a reason. They're there to keep us all safe, whether or not you agree with them. And it's just really bad for a CEO of an airline to be flouting regulations like that openly in front of the media. I wanted to talk about it because I think there's a couple of things here. And Seth Miller, who was on the program last week before you guys got on the flight, Mentioned this, I think, on Twitter or in a post, kind of a review. But if this, you know, safety regulation seems disregardable, what else do they deem unnecessary to follow? And you know, even if the mask mandate is at this point, if everyone's vaccinated, isn't as important as possibly it once was, it's still in place. And we talk a lot about cabin crew being. Actually, in this week or, or last week, we didn't talk about it, but I mean, literal punching bags 
for passengers. I mean, there was a Southwest flight attendant that lost two teeth. And so these kind of things, they if there's not uniform enforcement and if the CEO of an airline doesn't think it's important enough to kind of follow the rules and regulations, to set an example for the rest of the Forget the crew, the rest of the passengers, so that the crew doesn't have to deal with something. Well, the CEO didn't think it was necessary, so why should I have to? I mean, that puts the crew in an impossible situation. Yeah, and it comes at a time where, like you mentioned, misbehaving passengers' incidents have really gone through the roof recently. And the FAA has been, thankfully, pretty heavy-handed in issuing fines. I'd like to see some jail time, of course, come down the road. But it has come at a time where flight crews are increasingly in passenger altercations, which is never good. I guess tensions are high. But in this case, yeah, still just really super disappointed at the Breeze executives for openly flaunting the rules like this. I don't even recall hearing any sort of onboard announcements about wearing a mask. And granted, this was a fight with AvGeeks and media on board, but it was still a revenue passenger carrying flight at the end of the day. So everyone should have been following the rules to a T, and they did not. Let's go to Belarus now and kind of walk through what's happened in the past week or so. There are so many notums to read, and we will not certainly not read them all, but there's a few that I want to touch on and kind of what's happened with the situation. So just today, we're recording June the 2nd, and just today, EASA has finally come out with its safety directive that says EASA member states should not let their member state aircraft fly over Belarus. Uh, so this was something that was suggested by the European Union the day after the Ryanair incident, and then it took until today for Yasa to come out and say, okay, don't do that. Most airlines had already restricted their overflights. However, there were some European airlines that were still overflying Belarus, and this new prohibition puts the restriction on that, and so we should see that overflying kind of dry up. Belarus, meanwhile, has been restricted in a variety of places from flying such that their kind of western and southern flank has been cut off. So they have started flying the long way around. I think the longest flight now is their their flight from Minsk to Tunisia. And that goes through Russian airspace into Turkish airspace, Greece, Italy, Malta, and then Tunisia. And so that's added about two hours to their flying time on that particular flight. Most of their flights to European destinations have been canceled, and they're still operating charter flights to to places like Tunisia and Egypt, but those are taking very circuitous routes at this point. So that's kind of where those two things stand. And then there's the FAA's notum, which Jason, I don't know if you read this or what, but it didn't really make any sense unless they were trying to not say anything, but felt that they needed to say something. Yeah. Wasn't it kind of like a, a suggestion to maybe try to avoid the area, but only for passenger flights, but not cargo? Yeah. Did I get that only, right? It only mentioned passenger carrying operators. It did not say anything about cargo. There are a few United flights that 
have flown over Belarus in the past, but it's not something that they did on a regular basis. The two flights to India, the um, was it Chicago to Delhi and then Newark to Mumbai or or vice versa, the city pairs. But but there were two United flights to India and they sometimes flew over Belarus when the winds were very favorable to push the flight south so that they could do that and you know save fuel and, and fly with the wind and things like that. But other than that, there are no US passenger carriers that fly over. It's FedEx, UPS, and some of the you know charter cargo airlines, one of which had already stopped flying over Belarus. So very interesting wording on the notums, but we'll take with that whatever information we're supposed to gather, I do not know. But as it stands right now, not much has changed. Things have expanded a little bit, but not much has changed. The only real new front we've got are the reciprocal agreements between Germany and Russia have halted flights. Because of COVID, Russia stopped approving seasons worth of overflights or or direct flights to their airports and move to a kind of month to month it's kind of like a, your lease expired and and you're continuing month to month and so germany and russia have now suspended each other's flights pending approvals we'll see how long this lasts because i can't see it being a net benefit for Russia. And I think we talked about this last time, but I just can't see it as being a net benefit for Russia, even medium term. No, they're going to have to weigh the benefits and, and cons here about protecting neighbor Belarus, I guess, to see if they really want flights to Germany or if they really want to block flights from Germany. I can't imagine that this would last long other than you know a couple of days spat. But dumber things have persisted for much longer. <laughs> there's, a, there's the episode title. There we go. <laughs> Okay. Speaking of things going on for quite some time, Boeing has once again halted 787 deliveries after what seems like a an approvals process for an agreed upon inspection process. So the reporting that, that I've seen, especially from Dominic Gates out of, out of the Seattle Times and the folks over at the Wall Street Journal, it, is that the FAA wants to make sure that Boeing's done its homework and, and has everything in order before they sign off on the inspection and approval process. So this seems like it won't last long, but as you very astutely noted not a minute ago, dumber things have lasted for longer. Yeah. So, so we'll see how long it takes for the 787 deliveries to to restart. Yeah. I guess we can provide a little more background here. I think there's a bit of a discrepancy or, or unsettled determination on how Boeing does its uh, final checks on the approval of the aircraft, whether or not the FAA wants to allow the Boeing to kind of spot check the aircraft using algorithms and and data science to figure out what is most likely to be problematic and only inspect that versus doing a much broader overarching inspection of more aircraft. And that's probably a good thing to settle before you start redelivering aircraft. Yeah, I mean, you, you want to know that I think as you know, as the FAA wants to know exactly what's happening and and how it's happening and and when it's happening, and I think Boeing has now a vested interest in making sure that the FAA is satisfied with their activities. Let's turn to something where the FAA wasn't satisfied. 
Boeing will pay at least $17 million in penalties and undertake multiple corrective actions with its protection under a settlement agreement reached late last week. What had happened was that Boeing had installed equipment on 759 aircraft, Boeing 737 MAX and 737NG, containing sensors that were not approved for those aircraft. And there were also 178 737 MAX aircraft where the aircraft had potentially, and I shall quote the FAA here, non-conforming slat tracks installed, and they had improperly marked those slat tracks. So not great. Also, only 17 million. Yeah, that's... um. I forget who exactly did the math on what this works out to per aircraft, but it is not a lot. I mean, no, it's certainly not a lot, especially for for aircraft that cost well over a, a sing, you know a single aircraft costs well over that amount. No, I mean so several times as of March 2021, the list price of a 73 Max eight was 121.6 million. So yeah, yeah uh, well below. You know, it, it's one of those things. It, it's $18,000 an aircraft, $18,000 per affected aircraft. Get your house in order. Yeah. I mean, this is it's an insignificant amount of money at the end of the day for a company like Boeing. They'll, they'll cut a check and they'll never think of it again. I'm just interested to know where that money goes. Does it just, do they cut a check to the US Treasury? And, and it assume. goes, I mean, wouldn't it be nicer if it went to some sort of aviation related? fund of some sort, but I guess we'll, I have no idea where it ends up. And I'm I just rambling. Know. But yeah, it's a very, very minor amount for a company the size of Boeing. Yeah. We'll leave it there. I feel like I just keep you know broken record on this. I would love to do an entire podcast on Boeing commits to building a new aircraft. Here's the next 10 years of Boeing. This is the amazing new technology Boeing is working on. These are all of the... Th- and I want to do those episodes. I need to do those episodes, but they're not giving us much to work with over here. Well, no, <laughs> especially when when really the only next gen thing going on Boeing is the continuation of the Triple Seven X program, which is radio silence, and maybe they'll outfit some of their existing aircraft with uh, sustainable aviation fuel. That's it. Okay, I'm sure they have other stuff going on, but they are not talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I, anytime they want to talk. Our microphones are open. Airbus, on the other hand, is getting ready to build a lot more A320 family aircraft. A lot more. Uh, How in, in the many next more? Four years. Okay. I'm glad you asked. Airbus will build going to 45 A320 aircraft per month by the end of this year. And up it has from... up from the current average rate. Uh, Thanks. Which that's, is that's helpful. Now, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, it's thirty I something. Yeah. So I, I don't have the exact number in front of me. I was all excited about the future. So and has told its suppliers to be prepared for a rate of sixty four by Q two of twenty twenty three, then Q one of twenty twenty four going up to seventy aircraft per month. Wow. And then. Longer term, Airbus is investigating, quote, opportunities for rates as high as 75 aircraft per month by 2025. That's substantial. 
I would imagine that encompasses all of their production facilities. So Germany, France, the US, and the final assembly line down in China. But yeah. that is that is dramatic. So if I'm remembering correctly, before the pandemic, Boeing's target rate for the 737 was, I think, in the high 50s. I think it's like 57. And then there were talks about going up to like low 60s, like 62, 64, something like that. So this leapfrogs that in a few years. It'll be really interesting to see if Boeing matches that or what they're thinking. Because that's a lot of planes per month. Is it even possible, like physically possible for Boeing to match that rate since the 7.3 is only produced in Renton? They don't come from anywhere else. Uh, I so, mean, they're going to have a lot of available space pretty soon. So they I, sure I are. Know. I, know, I know we've talked about that before, moving, potentially moving some 7.3 production up to Everett or maybe entirely. I don't know if that will happen. But there was an interesting article posted by Reuters earlier today that really did make a good case that Airbus has undisputedly come out ahead of Boeing out of the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't think anyone could, could legitimately dispute that. And it does not want to give up that leading position to Boeing. Boeing still has to figure out what it wants to do next. Does it want to stick with the 7.3 MAX for the foreseeable future? Or does it in the next year or so want to announce a next-gen narrow-body aircraft to finally replace the elderly 737 line, possibly opening up for orders, launching it in 2023, or wait until 2030 for something new, something with different, more efficient engines? And they've got a lot to think about but it's very clear that Airbus has a vision for the near and long-term future of its narrow-body production, and that vision is more, faster, and more. <laughs> more, faster, and more. Yeah. That's, that's a, I don't think there's a really – I don't think there's another way to sum it up other than, yeah, saying that they're going to build a lot of airplanes and they're hoping to sell even more. So that definitely – Definitely want Boeing to do something because I just – I'm sitting over here going, I want to see competition here. I mean, Airbus is eating Boeing's lunch, dinner, dessert, all of the food items that Boeing has. Yeah. So it, it seems increasingly likely that that competition is going to come from a new entrant, maybe China or elsewhere or possibly Russia. But we'll never know if Boeing was planning on launching a new narrow-body aircraft pre-pandemic. Maybe they had something up their sleeves and that was delayed or scrapped or everything was rethought because the market has changed so wildly in the last year. But it's pretty clear now that Boeing is still thinking about what it wants to do in the future. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we've got kind of a, I don't want to call it post-COVID because it's certainly we're certainly not anywhere near post yet. But kind of a, a forward-looking, as things start to normalize, what some different airlines are doing and what some of the regulators are saying as well about what we're going to see throughout the summer. So we will be right back with that. Welcome back. The summer is looking up in most places, 
Eurocontrol says that traffic in 2021 will be roughly 50% of pre-COVID, which is not a great number, but also not is also better than we would have even thought about a few months ago. So that'll be interesting to to follow along. And a lot of airlines are bringing aircraft back into service. We're starting to see a few airlines re-passengerize their aircraft out of the uh, the COVID combis that they had been operating. And Iberia is going to bring back almost 30 narrowbody aircraft back into the fleet out of storage. And they will take three A330s that had been cargo only and turn them back into passenger aircraft and put those into service for the, the summer season. So, you know, things things seem to be looking up. I mean, the TSA numbers in the US are trending upwards. We didn't quite go over 2 million people in a single day over the Memorial Day holiday, but it seems like that could be possible soon. I mean, there was yeah. 1.9 million, I think it was on Monday. Yeah, and I believe the summer IATA schedule just came into effect yesterday, actually, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a significant retooling of flight schedules, including the first A380 to come back to JFK since March 2020. So that was exciting. Wow. Yeah, That's, Emirates, uh, they're, they're back. Yeah. I don't know if there's anyone on the plane, but the, the plane is the A380 is back. So that's nice. The plane is back. So that's, you know, again, with the, the fundamental belief that I will take what I can get. Right, exactly. So summer is not looking great for transatlantic travel. Things are still not really open or easily open. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. And as much as the European Union is a union, they are, are very disorganized on reopening as a whole. So Americans can go to Italy, but they maybe can go to Germany, but they definitely can't go to France. It's all very confusing. So the summer is really looking to be a lost cause for tourism in many markets that it is typically extremely busy. 50% is good, I guess. It's not great, but it, it's nothing to sneeze at. No, I mean, like I said, it, it's better than I would have even dreamt of a few months ago. Yeah. It's and hey, Eurocontrol has been saying for years that European airspace is too congested and someone needs to do something about it. So something has happened and I they have gotten their wish. this is what they had in mind. No, they, this is not what they had in mind, but it, it is a result and it has gone too far. Yeah. Okay. So we have on this podcast – probably talked about Norwegian more than any other airline. And I am actually happy to say that we have good news about Norwegian. Wow. I know. They have exited bankruptcy and are now coming out of the process with about a a 50-strong narrow-body fleet. Their 787s are, at this point, long gone for as far as operationally concerned. And they're looking forward to what's next. And I really do hope that they they are successful. Yeah. I mean, I hear there is some opportunity in the transatlantic market for someone to come up and, and uh, stir up some trouble with low fares. They could try that again. <laughs> I, think that, I think they're out of that game. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, this has basically set them back a decade. They're, they're yeah. more or less the Norwegian from 10 years ago. 
Yeah, with slightly more fuel-efficient planes. Are they? They don't even have the Max anymore. They got rid of the Max. They got rid of the 787s. It is basically the same thing, no? Okay, yeah, I suppose then. Yeah. I assume okay. they operated 800s uh, 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Never mind. They're the, yeah, the Norwegian 10 years ago, but they've got a plan now. Uh, yeah. And, and hopefully that, that one works out. And hopefully that other Norwegian airline with Norwegian 787s does the whole transatlantic thing because, you know, maybe it'll work this time. Yeah. And then there's the, the other new Norwegian airline. So not Norse Atlantic Airways, which is going to operate the former Norwegian 787s, but the Flyer or, or Fleer airline. And the only reason I, I bring them up is because we were doing a, a database update on the Flight Radio 24 database and their iCal call sign is Fox. And I just think that's cool. cool. That's cool. That's the only thing I had there. Okay. Elsewhere in Norway, Wizz Air has lasted but a hot minute as a domestic airline in Norway. Not least of which is because the Civil Aviation Agency of Norway or Civil Aviation Authority of Norway announced that they were going to have a, a health and safety audit of the Oslo base. And upon receipt of that notification, Wizard decided that they weren't going to be a domestic Norwegian airline anymore. Huh. That's, no. that's not at all shady. That doesn't at that all. doesn't sound shady at all. No, no. So Wizz Air is going to move all of those aircraft and all that operation to Italy because Italy seems like a great place to run an airline. Hey, it worked for Air Italy. Did it? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't even I don't it's is it just throwing darts at a board at this point? Like I don't Yes. I don't even Yes. Okay. Well, that answers that question. Yeah. So, so there you go. I thought we could close the show with a thing that attaches to a wing. I don't. Do we call it a winglet? Do we call it? The company calls it the Trinitaire, which I think is a play on Trident and Air. But yes, I'm but not you, you sure. have to emphasize that it's in all caps. It is. So maybe it stands for something. Whatever it is, it's made by the Aircraft Performance Company, hmm. a very cleverly named company that is working on a, a wingtip solution. This particular solution is going to be fit onto a HiFly A330 for testing instead of the normal A330 winglet. This particular wingtip solution, shall we say, is a tri-bladed thing? Thing? I, yeah, it, it, there's a link in the show notes and you can see what it looks like and you can describe it however you would like. But the idea is that this particular wingtip thing does more to help the aircraft fly more efficiently than the standard Airbus winglet. So that will be something that they are trialing. They haven't said which A330 it's going to go on, but they've used, I think, uh, CSTQP in the past for these types of in-flight trials. So I wouldn't be surprised if they if they don't use that once again. But if we get wind of which flights these will actually be on, we'll make note of that and, and add it into the show notes uh, so that by the time you listen to this, we can be a little more certain. Yeah. And they, they say 
Yeah, neat. And they say it reduces fuel consumption by up to 2%, which doesn't sound big, but that could end up saving a, a good deal of fuel on every flight. They say in aviation, every kilogram of fuel saved carbon emissions is reduced by 3.16 kilograms. So every little bit adds up and also just looks cool. I mean, we only have a very low resolution rendering of the thing. Somebody had a great time in MS Paint on Windows XP, but <laughs> it looks like it will be very cool once it's actually on a physical airplane. Yeah, they, they did a very nice job with the shading if they did this in MS Paint. but uh, And the uh, the compression and the pixelation is wonderful. Well, that, that's the thing. It looks like somebody took Photoshop and then ran it, like printed it out, scanned it back in, and then exported it to like I don't know, bitmap or something. And yet here we are in, in yes. 2021. Yeah, but it does look cool. The, the rendering has it on, on the end of a wingtip of an A330. And I think it's going to surprise some people on just how large it is, if the proportions of this rendering are correct. I hope it is. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it looks huge. But then again, I mean, remember, the winglets on the 767 are 11 feet tall. Yeah, these uh, things are are much bigger than you would think when you stand when you're standing right next to them. Yeah, so so I mean, not something. I mean, they need to be big to be effective. So that's uh, that's all we've got for this week. We'll end with a winglet thingy, I think. Yeah, as you have in the the show notes, it is literally high flight A three thirty winglet thingy. Until I have a better name for it, that's what I'm going with. Anyway, okay, this has been. Episode 114 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>